You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of your wonderful faces here. And if you're joining us online, thank you so much for joining us for worship today. As Wes mentioned, my name is Dan, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. And this week, I have the privilege of sharing the message called Jesus in the Crowds as we continue on in the series of Beholding Jesus. Um, just a fun little fact, though, just to reiterate another announcement that Wes shared with us earlier. Starting next week, we have our 8 a.m. service. So for all your early birds, that's your jam, maybe. Um, you know, leading up to today, I will admit, though, I was praying some selfish prayers, and this is what I mean. The last time I had the privilege of sharing with our community, it was back in March, Daylight Savings. So everyone else got to kind of wake up when they normally do, and I had to wake up an hour early, and I was like, Lord, for you, I will do this. <laughs> And then looking at the roster, I'm like, what week am I? Oh, man. And then, okay, we can do this. But then, oh, we might be doing the 8 a.m. service on July 18th. And I said, Jesus, can we talk about this? I don't want to lose like two hours in the same year. So anyway, um, our senior pastor, David Dwight, will have the privilege of kicking that off next week. And we hope that some of you will join us for that. Well, today, um, again, Jesus and the crowds. But before we start rolling into this topic, I thought it would be interesting to ask you this kind of question, right? So how many of you have had this experience? Let's say you get to know someone for any length of time, and you're like, yeah, I think I've got a solid handle on who they are, what they like to do, etc. But then someone else points out something about that person that you've never noticed before, and you're like, you know what? I never noticed that. And after that point, you can't not notice that. Right? So some of you are like professional people watchers, and so you notice things like, did you notice she always, wear, she always wears white shoes? Or he's always got the most unique glasses. Right? Or did you know that she always laughs at a joke even if it's not funny? <laughs> or maybe if you eat out a lot, that dude always orders the tacos. Right? And so these are examples of how somebody might point something else out to you that you may have just simply overlooked. Now, personally, I'm an introvert, but I also enjoy meaningful relationships and interactions with people that I care about. But because of that, when I think about Jesus and try to recall instances in scripture of what he's doing, my mind and heart usually go to the examples of where he's one-on-one with an individual or with a small group of people, like his disciples, his buddies, right? But today, as uh, I share, I'm reminded of how my eyes were opened up just that much more about who Jesus is. And that's kind of the point of this series called Beholding Jesus, wanting to provide us opportunities to see Jesus maybe in brand new, fresh ways. Or maybe this is a time you get to be reminded of a truth that is both age old and yet super relevant today. So let's pray for a moment, asking for the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes, our minds, our hearts, all that we are, so that we might behold Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these moments together where you, by your Spirit, are present, where through your Word you are speaking, you are on the move, you are doing something in our lives. God, it's our prayer today that as we open up ourselves to you, that you would reveal yourself to us that would cause us to behold you, to see you more clearly, to know you that much more. And God, as a result, would we change? 
Would we be amazed? Would we find ourselves in wonder? And would the desire of our hearts lead us to draw closer to you? So God, have your way this morning. We love you and we thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we get started, I thought I'd throw out just a few small stats. So did you know that the number of times that we see the word crowd, or crowds, the plural form, the word crowd appearing in the same verse as Jesus happens 160 times in the four gospel accounts. Now, for reference sake, does anybody want to take a guess as to how many times we see the word disciples with the word Jesus in the same sentence? So by show of hands, if you think there are more instances of Jesus with the disciples, raise your hand. Raise your hand if you think that there are more instances of Jesus in the crowds in the scriptures. And some of you just don't want to raise your hands, and that's okay. <laughs> I get it. Brownie points if you raise a hand uh, while watching on YouTube. So Jesus and the disciples only shows up 120 times. So if I'm doing my math right, I think that's about a 30% increase, right? in the number of times we see Jesus being mentioned with the crowds. Again, as an introvert, I look at that and I'm like, really? How did I seem to miss that? 30% more often uh, is Jesus seen with the crowds. Now, in terms of like substance, there are, you know, the conversations with the disciples, we see that recorded more, but man, Jesus was with the crowds a lot. And in the New Testament, when we talk about the word crowds, we're talking about the multitudes, the masses. These are large quantities of people. And often, in the original language, and even in our English translations, we see words like great, immense, and dense attached to the word crowd, so that it often reads the great crowds, right? immense crowds, large crowds. So we're talking about lots of people on the order of hundreds of people at the least, most likely thousands, if not tens of thousands of people all coming to engage with Jesus. This is certainly not talking about handfuls or dozens. The crowds. I mean, think about it. In the account of Jesus feeding the thousands, there's two different accounts, but the first one, right, talking about 5,000 people, there's a consensus that, and Scripture says that these are the adult men that are being counted as part of that 5,000. So, in other words, if we were to include in that number the women and children that were present, it could easily be triple that size to where we're talking about 15,000 people gathering to see Jesus. Elsewhere, in Mark, we see, or sorry, Luke chapter 12, verse 1, it says that a crowd of many thousands gathered around Jesus, so much to the point that they were trampling over one another. This is crazy. So here on site, here at the West Creek campus, here in this auditorium, max seating capacity is about 600 people. 600 people, 15,000. Sometimes Hope Church hosts events over at places like the Altria Theater. And I Googled this, right? Max seating capacity, 3,500. 3,500, 15,000. So you'd need four fully packed out services at the Altria Theater in the city of Richmond to equal something that would hold this capacity of 15,000 of people. And that wasn't just a single experience. Throughout the gospel accounts, one after another, Jesus in the crowds, large crowds, immense crowds, dense crowds, all gathering around Jesus, even trampling over one another. Wild. Tons of people came to see Jesus, and they were also coming from all over the place. It's very likely that if you were in one of those large crowds, you were rubbing shoulders and elbows with people that you've never seen before in areas you've never stepped foot in. 
So let's take a quick look at Matthew chapter 4 in verses 23 and 25 just to get one of these examples. It says, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds, there it is, from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, even in this short passage, we see different locations being mentioned. And these locations, one from another, could be anywhere from 20, 30, 40, 50, even 60 miles apart. And today, right, in a day and age where we've got electric cars that almost drive themselves, you think, yeah, it's not a big deal. But back then, 60 miles, that is substantial. People coming from all over the place to see Jesus. Now, what kind of person do you have to be whether back then or today, to draw that kind of crowd, to have that kind of following. Now, this is not some super clean apples-to-apples comparison, but if we took a look at Instagram and looked at the top 10 accounts to see who they belong to and how many followers they have, I think we get a picture of something, right? So uh, the number was, so I checked this like last week, so if it's changed, like, please don't like yell at me. Okay, this is maybe like seven days old. But as of about a week ago, the number one account belongs to, anyone want to take a guess? That's what I heard. Cristiano Ronaldo. So in case you're like, who the heck? He is uh, a pretty handsome Portuguese football player, right, soccer. Uh, Juventus, I can't remember the name of his team, but he's got 270 million followers. Way to go, Cristiano. On the number two spot when I checked was Ariana Grande. And she had, at the time, about 227 million followers. Number three was The Rock. Not A Rock, like, oh, what's so good about this, right? I'm not talking about, but the, Dwayne Johnson, right? He had about 220. So this top 10 list includes these folks, includes people like Justin Bieber, right? For all you believers out there. Um, and it's interesting, the, the number 10 account was National Geographic. Like, we could go, National Geographic. <laughs> they had like about 150 some odd uh, million viewers. Now, I, that's like the top 10. If you were to scroll down and look at the other ones, you've got a long list of other people who fit in what I would call the entertainer category. Folks like Ellen DeGeneres is there. There are some other musicians and singers, uh, celebrities, etc. But isn't that interesting? That aside from Nat Geo, right, they're, they're, they're an odd one there. Um, but most of these people, these personalities, could be described as entertainers. And these are the kinds of people that we, as humanity, often follow. Crowds are interesting. Crowds often gather around spectacle. Something that usually glitters or shines or dazzles. Something that quickly piques our interest. What is that all about? And then oftentimes crowds are also drawn to greatness. You're not drawn to a rock. (laughs) You're drawn to the rock, right? (laughs) It's different. What was it about Jesus that drew these crowds? And I want you to just kind of like let that question simmer and swirl around in your hearts and minds. 
And you know, sometimes for these people to make it big, to have this kind of following, it takes years and years, right? Or sometimes they have that one hit wonder and they kind of rise to the top, but then eh, it kind of like dies down. But we see in the gospel accounts that almost immediately Jesus goes viral. Remember that passage in Matthew chapter four? Matthew, the first chapters of the gospel of Matthew are a lot of like history and genealogy and backstory, right? So chapter four is pretty early on in what is his public ministry. Even sooner than that, in Mark chapter one, it states, this is Mark's gospel in chapter one, it states that the crowds gathered, but the entire town gathered at the house where Jesus was staying, right? So this is early on. It was likely the combination of Jesus' passionate, authoritative teaching combined with his supernatural miracles that really caught people's attentions spread like wildfire. And Jesus didn't go looking for crowds, but it was often the case that the crowds were looking for him. Jesus very likely doesn't consider himself to be an entertainer, but if you're part of the crowds, you'd probably find Jesus to be quite entertaining. Did you see that? Did you hear what he said? He turned water into wine? He said that to them? He went to whose house for dinner? All of this is just adding to the people's perception of what ends up being seen as a spectacle. But Jesus, in his teachings and miracles, was incomparable. There was no one else like him. To the masses, he wasn't just an opening act. He wasn't a rerun. He wasn't a copycat. He wasn't a knockoff. Jesus was a spectacle. But even, from, even apart from what the crowds perceived him to be, Jesus truly is compelling He is provocative. He is complex and mysterious. He is incredible and amazing, and yet he is very unpredictable and utterly unique. The crowds gathered because they caught a glimpse of greatness. There had never been anyone like Jesus before, and I would suggest there still to this day is no one else like him. Let's take a look at Mark chapter three, verses three, or Mark chapter three, verses seven to ten. Again, this is pretty early on. It's how wild things were getting. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomea, and the regions across the Jordan and around here in Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. So it's not using the word trample here, but you get that sense that people are just, oh, they, they want to get in. And so they're running out of room. And so they got this boat ready so Jesus could get on the boat so he could keep some sense of distance without being mobbed. It was getting crazy. And in fact, later on in that same passage in verses 20 and 21, it says this, then Jesus entered a house and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat can't have dinner, man. They're hungry. And imagine just people barging in, pushing through the door, trying to sit next to you. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. It was getting crazy, and they thought he was crazy because of what was happening. Like, what is going on? But you know, for the disciples, the people that were around him, his buddies, his entourage, his close group of friends, they appeared to be enjoying this kind of popularity and fame. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because these dudes, the 12 disciples at this time, were largely considered to be very 
unexceptional by their society standards. And so they're like, oh man, we've got the spotlight. This is great. Jesus, keep at it, keep at it. It's interesting, in John chapter 12, this is further down in the timeline of things, but there were a group of religious leaders observing what was going on. And this group of people were the ones that were used to being in the spotlight, having all the attention, having the people listen in, following them on Instagram. And at that point, it says, now the crowd that was with him, when Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Crowds, crowds, crowds. Everyone sees it. Even those who oppose Jesus are seeing it. They're frustrated. What the heck? What do we do? What do we do with this? Now here's a question. What would you be willing to do to have even just a fraction of the attention or the following that Jesus had? Ooh, what would that be like? How badly would you want your name in the minds and on the lips of people as they clamor to reach and engage you, to be the object of everyone's attention or affection, to be in such high demand that people are trampling over each other like a pre-COVID Black Friday gone bad, right? Walmart, anyone? So with all of this, this is just context, context. What the heck is happening? If you're trying to paint a picture, what is going on? How does Jesus, how does Jesus appear to feel about the crowds? You know, we often believe, rightfully so probably, that due to Jesus' humble nature, that Jesus had a sort of like disdain for the crowds. Like, eh, I ain't really about that. No, no, no. Let, let, let's huddle up over here. But that just wasn't the case. Jesus doesn't often send the crowds away. In fact, even if it comes at the expense of him having to switch his own plans to switch gears, Jesus chooses to engage the crowds, even when they show up unexpectedly. And in two different places, in Matthew's gospel, in chapters 9 and 14, we see that when Jesus sees the crowd, scripture says that he had compassion, had empathy. He saw them. He said, oh, I want to meet their needs. And that's what he did. Either continuing to teach, healing all of the people that they brought to him, very likely both. Jesus loved the crowds. Not some sort of like, ooh, I just love the crowds. But no, my heart is for them. They have a need. And Jesus begins and continues to give of himself for the crowds. Healing the sick. Speaking the truth. And yet, even with all of that attention, all of that commotion, Jesus doesn't seem to be very concerned about riding the waves of fame, popularity, and renown. So going back to Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 38 illustrate this. So verse 36, right? So Jesus is off to the side. He's kind of like hidden away. In verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for Jesus. And when they found him, they exclaimed, hey, Jesus, hop to. Everyone is looking for you. Let's go. Game time. Verse 38, Jesus replied, mm, let's go somewhere else. To the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. Excuse me, Jesus. Like, do you not see? You've been healing and healing. Wasn't the whole point to have everybody come and see you? This is early on. And Jesus says, no, I'm, Jesus is not interested in that. And he goes on to say, that is why I've come 
So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Jesus was on mission. Yeah, he intentionally slips away to get back on track, to stay on track. And other times we do see that Jesus slips away for the sake of achieving some form of solace and space with God the Father. But he loves the crowds. He did back then, and he still does today. But then, throughout the Gospels, Jesus begins to say and share things that become quite challenging for the people around him. His teachings fall on ears, and it creates a stir in the hearts and the souls of the listeners to the point where, uh uh-oh, there's some dissonance. We see this in John chapter 6, verse 60 and 66. It simply says this, on hearing it, in other words, some of the teaching that Jesus had been sharing, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? They're like, what? What What do I make of this, right? And then it goes on to say, from this time, many of his disciples, not speaking directly about the 12, but many of the people that were trying to follow him, says at this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. There begins to be turning points, some shifts. It's not all fun and games. Because you see, in order to sustain a crowd, you've got to keep them coming back. Right? You've got to raise the stakes. You've got to deliver more and more, figure out what they need and, and give it to them. As electrifying as crowds can be, crowds can also be quite fickle. Ramping up the act. Give them what they want. Otherwise, hearts and eyes glaze over. Eh. I think I'm done with that. Or they just simply find someone else to to meet their needs. Unfollow, right? And then follow this person instead. But Jesus didn't always scratch the itches that they wanted scratched. He didn't always play to their expectations. And like Pastor David Dwight said a couple weeks ago, Jesus doesn't want to leave people dying in pretty painted coffins. So with all that he does, he brings truth, light, and insight, truth that leads to freedom, often in ways that feel a little bit, oof, uncomfortable. A lot of people just started to stop following him and they began to leave. And you know, in preparing for this week, I had this question in my mind, would professional athletes, would professional athletes continue to play the game in the way that they've been doing if there were no crowds? If there were no fans, if you take that part of the equation out of the picture, would they still be professional athletes? However, in this context, Jesus, not being an entertainer, not a professional athlete, Jesus didn't back down. He doesn't go switching tactics while also trying to plead and chase the crowd saying, no, no, come back, come back, I got something else for you. Jesus doesn't do this. He stays on brand as he continues to teach, to confront, to love, and to heal. Because he knows what his mission is. He wants to bring restoration, truth, and the good news. And it's also interesting that for all the people that did leave him, throughout the entirety of the gospel accounts from beginning to end, crowds are always present. But eventually, there is one big turning point with the crowds to the point where they turn against Jesus. So all the while, these crowds have been following, following. Yeah, let's go see Jesus. And at the very end, at the very end, 
These same crowds are the ones that turn on them. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 27. So again, this is on the back end. Jesus is being put on trial publicly. There's an opportunity right, for the people, the crowds, to say who they want to see executed. And so this is the scenario here. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd. Isn't that interesting? So a different group now has the ear and the attention of the crowds. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. And a few verses down, they say it again. They reiterate, crucify him. That is our decision as the crowds. We, the people, want Jesus crucified. So at the end of that passage, it says that he was flogged. Jesus was flogged and indeed handed over to be crucified. It's a small note about this. You know, there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Rarely do we see an instance or an event that's captured in all four. But this instance of the crowds turning on Jesus, yelling, crucify Jesus, is found in all four gospels. Isn't that interesting? But with all of this, I think what it really boils down to is seen in a short passage in Luke's gospel. This account is in the other gospels, such as Matthew and Mark, but here's Luke's account. So this is Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 20. It says, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, Jesus asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and still others that one of the many prophets, one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And here's, I think, the kicker. Jesus turns over to them and says, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And then here Peter answers, God's Messiah, the one who saves. Back then, and even now, I think the heart of Jesus when it comes to the crowds, is to get them to this point where they can respond to this question of who do you say that I am? Everything has been a matter of trying to give you the intel, right? To observe, to see, to witness who Jesus is, what he's capable of doing, so that you can try to connect the dots, so that at some point, the Holy Spirit knocks on the doors of our hearts to have us answer and respond to this question of who do you say that Jesus is. And when Jesus asks us this question, back then and through his spirit today, I do believe that he wants us to be able to say that Jesus, you are the Messiah. And that word Messiah means the one who saves, the saving one. And when you say this, Jesus smiles back and says, your confession right there, to address me, to know that I am the one who saves, is what makes you blessed. If you or I had been a part of this crowd at any point, up until now, and all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I, I don't feel like I need to be saved. Jesus becomes irrelevant. If you and I don't think that Jesus has anything to offer us that we don't already have, Jesus is irrelevant. If he stopped entertaining us if he stopped keeping us busy and occupied with one thing after another, Jesus becomes irrelevant. 
But by God's grace, we have opportunities where we get to see that we can't save ourselves. And oftentimes we try to keep our weaknesses at bay, sweep them under a rug and say, no, 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 I'm good. I don't, I don't need saving. I'm, I'm great. But it's a gift of God to see that we are in, our, in and of ourselves inadequate at some point. And all of this hopefully allows us to see, to witness and observe, to experience Jesus as the one who saves, the one who is true, the one who is love the one who meets us where we are, as we are, to bring both light and insight, the one who gives us life and freedom, the one who can provide for our needs because he lacks nothing, the one who is good, the source of all that is life, whole and beautiful, the one who invites us not just to be in the crowd, but to come closer to relationship and being known. When you and I are in the crowd, are in the crowd, Jesus can be on the periphery. He can simply just be one of many other pursuits. When we're in the crowd, we can keep our anonymity and a measure of distance. And you know what? If that's you today, it's okay. It's okay. Because part of what this shows us, Jesus and the crowds, is that Jesus doesn't go around shaming people and coercing people like, hey, hey, hey. Did you, did you hear what I said? Come follow me. Jesus doesn't go around badgering people, demanding our attention. He just is. He's not going to barge in. That's not who he is. And so the beauty, I think, is that even in a large setting like this, or if you're online, separated by physical distance, even in these settings, Jesus sees us. So back then, even when there were tens of thousands of people I would like to think that Jesus doesn't see like a big blob of people, but he knows, he acknowledges, he recognizes, and he values every single person in the crowds. And that is true today. From where you're sitting, from where you're listening, from where you're watching, Jesus sees you with eyes of deep longing and compassion. Jesus can and wants to close the gap. Even in a setting like this, he wants to extend an invitation for you to draw closer to him. And even if there is one thing or another or several things keeping you from closing that gap yourself, Jesus says it's okay. Because what Jesus will continue to do is show up. You'll see him. He'll present himself. Not barging in, but through his spirit, through people around you. Right. Through instances like this, Jesus will make himself known to you and extend an invitation saying, do you want to come closer? And as you witness, as you observe, maybe as part of a crowd, maybe by the Spirit's leading, you begin to draw close. Maybe there'll be a certain point then where the Holy Spirit will come knocking on your heart and ask you the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is this Jesus? Jesus wants to pursue you. And ultimately, whether you're in the crowd or not, he desires to close the gap and offer himself to you freely, giving of himself to you. And this is why he is the good news. Will you come? Will you come? So this week here, we have the opportunity to partake of communion. And in scripture, um, the first instance we see this happening with Jesus and his disciples uh, they're, they're in a room. They're having dinner together. 
Um, so let me just tee this up. If you're here on site, um, we hope that you were able to receive one of these if you want to partake of communion. They're like a little pod. If you don't have one of these and you would like to partake, we do have some of our volunteers uh, ready to distribute these. Simply raise your hand at this point and they'd be more than happy to get this to you. So I know a lot of us are beginning to like open this and, and we can, let me just describe this. On the top, uh, if you haven't done this before, there's a, the camera can zoom in. Um, there's a little wafer right on the top layer and underneath there's another layer where if you pull that back, there's juice, there's grape juice, so just be careful. In a moment, I'm going to invite us to open both the lid where we reveal the wafer and then we have access to the juice. So again, if you need um, one of these, raise your hands and there we go. That's awesome. And if you're at home joining us online, then this is a great time to gather up the elements there. Excuse me. Um, and we'll partake of this shortly. But back then, Jesus was with his disciples, his closest of friends, and the night before he was going to be crucified, the night he would be betrayed, he has this really intimate setting. And again, this is just the perfect example, another example of Jesus saying, hey, regardless of who you are, what you're doing, how you feel about me, this is my heart for you. What do I mean by that? Well, there was uh, some bread there at the table that they were about to eat together. And he held up that bread up before them and said, this, what you see, it's so ordinary, but this right here is my body. They're like, wow. Yes, this is my body that is now being broken for you. Broken for you. Eat it. All right, so he begins to distribute this. And the scripture says that after that, he took the cup filled with wine there, and he begins to pour it. As he pours it, he said, This is my blood of the new covenant, the new promise shed for you and the forgiveness of your sins. And the disciples probably didn't fully get it then, but Jesus was saying, I'm giving myself. You come to me, I'll give you my body. In fact, I'll give you my life. Take it, it's going to be broken. Drink of my blood, right? For the forgiveness of your sins. This is a new promise. You, can't, you don't have to earn anything. Just be with me. And so whether to the crowds or whether to us today, this is an opportunity where we get to partake. So, um, if we have these, uh, go ahead and peel back that top layer and just hang on to the wafer. Do not consume it yet. Just hang on to it. And carefully uh, open up that second layer that opens up the juice. And just, just hang on to this for a second. Awesome. So let's hold these. And would you allow me to pray a blessing over us as we partake? And then we'll all uh, enjoy communion together. So let's pray. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, even being able to speak about who you are, just, God, I'm, I'm humbled knowing uh, the kind of person I can be, that I am. So inadequate and insufficient and flawed. Going off the course in one way or another, sometimes multiple times a day, and yet you do not turn away from me. You do not turn away from us. God, thank you that in your word we see, we get to see who you are. We get to behold you, to see you in action. That even as you speak, we get an inner glimpse at who you are, the heart of God. You're so kind, so patient, so generous, so compassionate, so powerful, so strong, so gentle, and so meek. 
So as we partake, God, I'm just thankful for you sending your son Jesus on our behalf. And Jesus, thank you that you would choose to willingly give of yourself. So with that, Lord, those of us who call you Lord and Savior, Lord, we, we, we say yes to that invitation. So bless these elements today as we partake of your body and blood. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead.